Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Uh, hey, Danny. Sorry. It's been a hectic Monday. Oh, no worries. No worries. There's, I think your, there's your doppelganger. Is that Christopher? That's me? Yes. Yeah, that, 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 yeah that's him. And what does he do? Uh, uh, just like spies on us and then reports to the media, actually. No, just kidding. Uh, he's my co-host on my podcast and kind of a longtime, you know, lefty vet partner. And uh, so he like sets up a lot of the tech for me because I'm terrible at that side of things. Not that okay. that's all he does. Is he ex-military? Yes. Yes. What, what? Henry, Henry, you can go ahead and maybe just. I was quick, a, so. uh, I was an army MP for six years. Oh um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I did uh, two, I, tour, two tours in Iraq. So, UMPs were ball busters. I, I, as you can see, I had problems with them. If you read my book, uh, I've always had problems with the uh, MPs. <laughs> well, he didn't make it to master sergeant, luckily, because then you guys oh, would have been no, enemies no. for life. I, yeah, I wanted to say that about about the, the last interview we had. I was because I was thinking about you. I was reading your book. I haven't completed it, unfortunately. Oh, no. I've been swamped, so I'm reading it mostly at late at night. Uh, and, and thank God it's not too long. I'm on page fifty or sixty out of one hundred and sixty-eight, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to print it out because, well, it's a very you know it's it's shit. It's a shit war, and it you you you. I mean, I read a little bit about other books about it too, and your story about getting always getting hit. I mean, it's just like you're a walking pin. You're 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 a target. Your war was so frustrating because it was all booby traps. You know, it seems to me. I mean, plus the usual difficulty of handling civilians. Yours was all civilians. There was no. It wasn't a war, and there was no jungle aspect to it. So, you know, that must have been very frustrating. It, it was, um, you know, my, my first book, which I actually just sent to you, just like, I don't expect you to read it right away, but I just sent you a signed copy of, which is really just about Iraq. Um, it's, it's interesting because Iraq and Afghanistan were such different experiences for me because Iraq was like completely the way you're describing for the most part. I mean, there were some gunfights and snipers, but it was booby traps and you never saw the enemy, even more so than your explanation of like the big January 1st battle. I mean, you just... You never saw the enemy, and it was awful. But then in Afghanistan, suddenly it was like a real war. And uh, our little base, our little fire base that I, you know, it was just me out there. It was just my company. So, you know, it was just me, uh, no colonels, luckily, <laughs> except when they visited and ruined our day. But that was, you know, we were like under siege. They attacked us 365 days. Um, and then suddenly it was like a real war. And it was just like very, I don't know, but but also the civilian side and the building. Real war, except you're, you're in one position. You're not You're not moving around. Oh, no, we would patrol. That was the crazy part. Yeah, we would go on patrols and air assaults. We, I don't know. We must have done two dozen air assaults. Um, 
but it was all very silly because sometimes we would uh we were so like under taliban siege that more than once we would be walking out of the serpentine of the gate and we would take fire and have to jump into the canal before we even got out of our own base and i would try to explain to my squadron commander i would say sir this is ridiculous like you're mandating that we patrol x number of times a day but unless i you know drop munitions all over the place which i did anyway i can't even get out the gate so what's the point you know and he was like well look my boss says we have to do it. So that's it. That's a good reason. Yeah. The, uh, I saw a, a documentary about a platoon in Afghanistan. Uh, I forgot the name of it, but it was so, it reminded me so much of the, it got worse after, I mean, it got worse with your army because it became more controlled. So what happens is they, some, some sniper fires, one shot, two shot, whatever it is. And then the next thing you know, the U.S. is screaming, there's one on top of the other, the radio, it's confusion. And there's all this fucking panic. And I, and I, it's not the way you fight. You have to kind of shut up and, but where is that coming from? And don't overreact. But mm-hmm. these guys were putting out firepower and I just didn't understand them. Just crazy. Didn't, they didn't know where they were shooting. It was clear from the documentary. Right. And it was just a sense of panic. And we had that too. It happened. But you see... It was just a different kind of thing because at least we were fighting an enemy whose tactics we were not as they were sneaking away. They their their ideal was to do what you those guys did in in, in Afghanistan, o- o- confuse the Americans and get them to to fire on each other and all that stuff and maybe blow up something. But we would send in in your case they send for support right away. Mm-hmm. The difference in Vietnam was the Marines were famous for not doing that. They were, they were famous for responding and going into the gunfire and dealing with it. That, that's why they had so many more casualties at certain points. But uh, it was always generally uh, pull back, you know, locate the enemy, call in your support, which in, in Vietnam could be helicopter or mostly artillery and but yeah. what happened in the jungle was that we got we would take casualties so there would be often you after the first initial firepower how many men are down you don't know because it's too thick to see so you're trying to figure out all that shit out and then there's this stupid thing i don't know on this one you may not agree with me at all but i don't understand all this war hero is a movie bullshit about going and getting the wounded men because what happens inevitably you go out to get the the two guys that got hit one of them may be dead. They don't, you don't even know. The other guy is in bad shape. But you, you're sending out another guy or two guys or three guys to get that guy, and, and they get wounded. So that's what the VC always wanted. They, they wanted us to commit, and they knew it as well we would go for the wounded. That I never understood. But so, and the truth is, you know, we didn't. Sometimes you didn't. You, if it was too heavy, you knew something was coming. You would, you would have to leave those guys out there until this thing got resolved. But you see, there's a mythology in this bullshit about, you know, we were our buddies, our, our comrades, our, you know, I would never leave a guy under fire. That's just, I never, you know, that's just horseshit to me because we were draftees like you were, and we didn't, uh, we didn't have this so-called the bond that the Marines or whatever, whoever had trained together, went there together. I never saw that. We were replacement troops. We were sent into units as replacements all the time. And they broke us up constantly. I think I gave you a little picture of that in the book. Yeah, yeah. 
it was what I what I was thinking about as a result of our interview was that I guess I didn't explain. I think you understood that your your I can see where in Afghanistan and in Iraq, certainly in Iraq, the officers had so much more control because you're it's your unit and. I can see where you you become very possessive of the men, and obviously you, because you're in more contact with them with the APCs, you're moving around more, and but in the jungle it doesn't happen that way because it seemed like from the get go you never knew, lieutenants were coming, you know they'd replace the other lieutenant, and it would be like on this weird, you didn't even know them. A few days left, somebody would disappear, they'd go back, or sometimes they'd get it exited from the field early. And a new lieutenant would come in, but your relationship was really with the with the platoon sergeant. And uh... I think some, you know, some of that is still the case. I mean, I, I, there's no doubt. I mean, in some ways, I became like a pariah among other officers because they got the sense that I didn't trust or didn't want to hang out with them as often. Although, I mean, a lot of my friends were officers, but oftentimes they were my lieutenants, you know, that served with me or, or worked for me when I was a captain. But you know, I mean, the, the difference, I think, is that because we would, like, train, we'd even, like, go to the National Training Center in the desert, we'd train up for a year together, and then we'd all go. But no doubt, the platoon sergeant was still the boss most of the time, and uh, the officer might control a lot of the fires, uh, like, you know, artillery and drones and all that, um, but... In the end, a lot of times the platoon sergeant was kind of making the calls anyway. And, and then as a troop commander, I sort of, or, you know, because in the cab, we call them troop commanders, even though I was light. So I was always either dismounted or in a Humvee. In Afghanistan, we didn't have any vehicles. Just the train couldn't do it because of the mountains and the river. But, um, you know, I started to realize even as a troop commander that sometimes I had to kind of go around my lieutenants. And not because I didn't like them, just because knowing the politics, like you put out so well. Hey, troop commander, you mean company commander? Oh, company, yeah, sorry. Com company and battalion, we just call them troops and well, squadrons. Majors, majors would be battalion and company would be captain in my time. Yeah, so um, I think that in Vietnam, a lot of times you guys were like a rank below uh, where we are either formally or because of like shortages. So a major is not supposed to command a battalion anymore. He's supposed to be like the uh, second in command or the operations guy, you know, and oh. then a lieutenant colonel would command, is okay. supposed to command the battalion. I guess. So. But I think that back then, I think there was just so much more turnover, as you mentioned. Um, but yeah, the platoon sergeants were still very powerful. And, you know, it was very interesting at West Point because a lot of the case studies that they used to like teach us leadership. You know, we take leadership class, which is like a farce. I mean, the whole idea of teaching leadership, I just, I don't even get me started on that. It's a mandatory class, two, two semesters, but a lot of the case studies they would use would be right out of Vietnam. And it would be uh, all about how, uh, how do you get the platoon sergeant to trust you when you're only 22 and they give you all these tips. And I just always thought it was a lot of bullshit, you know, like, that it, it you have to feel it out on the ground that it's either going to work or it's not. And it's as much built on trust and charisma as anything out of a book. Right. Yeah. Did you, uh, are you, are we recording this? I hope so. Yes. 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 So this is part of our continuing interview, I guess. Yes. I'm, I, I'm always, you know, prepared with a million things, but I'm up for whatever you are. Well, I haven't finished your book, so I can't give you the benefit of a full set of questions, you know, but if I do, I'll think of it, you know, Sure, I'll, sure. I'll come to the next week or whatever when I finish. Well, we're seeing a Thursday session. Thursday. 
That's right. I'm going to concentrate on the book as much as I can. I have so much to do because I have this book coming out. They have quite a bit of publicity campaign. I just want to go back to your friend here, Hennessy? Henry, yeah. Henry. Going back to the MP, I, I, I just want to hit that note because there was a lot of Article 15 shit in Vietnam. I don't know if they, you know what that is or it continues. I'm sure, maybe. Oh, sure. oh, yes. And uh, did you use, was it used extensively? <laughs> um, in my battalion, on the back of the like monthly newsletter would be all the Article 15s. And so anything that anybody did wrong from a small amount of fraternization to maybe a DUI to, oh yeah, no, no, um, but, but even smaller things. And when it went to combat, it became even more amplified. Um, here, hold, hold on one second. When you say fraternization, what was, what's, what was wrong with that? Uh, I, I wouldn't call it as a, as specifically as a bad thing. Um, sorry, I had my phone set up so I could hear you guys downstairs. Um, but everything became a problem. Everything and everything in the rear, usually when you're in combat, things become less important that are important in the rear haircuts making somebody yeah. is properly shaved but it seems that because of you guys were just discussing it about that you see all of your soldiers all the time you know senior ncos and officers maybe you live on the same camp as them so if you come back in from a 24-hour op somewhere you're exhausted you haven't eaten whatever someone's going to find you and tell you that you need to shave before you go and have a hot meal or take a shower or all that kind of, and 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 that's the kind of stuff became becomes amplified over time to other other areas you know this thing wasn't properly secured in your humvee in the way that the rest of the battalion did theirs it was secured but it wasn't the battalion sop so you're in Not trouble sure. for that um but and no, what was, it, have, have stayed the same? They just yeah, it's this. What was and how was it dealt with? I mean, they they Article Fifteen you, and you, you do you get a hearing? I I don't know how it works in this new army. It 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 depends on uh, on how high, on how high it goes. Usually, you get a hearing that's usually your commanding officer and you, or a, an investigating officer maybe. Um, and but but it really depends on who who's what higher up has decided and what are the what I guess the minimums for punishment are. Um, it, it, yeah, but, they add time to your. I mean, they, I, I believe in Vietnam they added the time, like time on your deployment. Well, I know that if you went to LBJ, that's what we called it. Long um, right, long venue. Yeah, that was okay. uh, that was time. Any time you did there, that was more serious you would add to your time there when you got out. So a lot of people had long, had been there for like, sometimes had to stay for a year and a half or something like that. Wow. It was awful. Yeah. yeah some of that, some of that changed because the units rotate in and out. So the, it's not that like the, the countdown is a unit wide countdown rather than like the individual yeah, yeah. replacement. Yeah. Which changed some of it. You know, uh, one of the things that struck me on this kind of master sergeant MP topic and the focus on the mundane cosmetic. When I was reading about when Westmoreland came to visit the battle site, um, and apparently you had heard he was, you know, more worried about haircuts than the, you know, coming Tet Offensive. It struck me uh, how that has somehow not really changed. 
<laughs> and, and it, uh, just like, one, I don't think I told you last time, just one maybe interesting vignette. When I was uh, out in, Af- in Afghanistan, I, mean, I was on my own little troop fire base. It was like a sandbag Alamo. And like I said, we really were fighting every day, like direct fire. And uh, so the sergeant major of the entire war, the ISAF command, you know, the NATO command, he's an American, uh, John Troxell, real douchebag. Um, but he was like a big hero of like Iraq, supposedly. He's this badass sergeant major. So he flew in because he wanted to give the BSMVs, the Bronze Stars of Valor, like you have two of, I believe, to some of my soldiers. And of course, they didn't want that. They just wanted like me to do it and like their platoon sergeant or whatever, you know, and small thing. But he's coming. He's going to do it. So he came down and my guys were in formation, the guys that are going to get their award. There's a number of them. It's like maybe five or six. And one of them, this guy, PFC Duke, skinny kid from Texas, um, his, he, he had gotten, you know, the, the Bronze Star of Valor for like dragging a wounded guy out who was his friend and ended up dying. In the process, he got shot through his boot heel. Um, and there was like a through and through hole in his boot. And so after that, he called them his lucky boots, that if he was wearing his lucky boots, he couldn't be killed. And so, you know, I, even as like a officer, like I'm not going to mess with that. I mean, whatever makes him happy, I trust. Uh, so then when the sergeant major of the entire war was giving him his medal, he ripped Duke's ass, like just tore him up and then turned to me and my first sergeant and screamed at us in front of our soldiers about our lack of standards. And uh, it was just like, it's just a striking moment where you, you know, say, like, you know. this is, we're losing the war and this is your concern. Yeah, the, but the, the, the reason they went out to the field in, in Vietnam was to get to time. They, they get, there was some bonus system. I don't know what it was. They, in other words, if a, if a guy could go out and join the, and stay out on patrol, he gets credit for it, and it counts on his service record or some crap like that. So they would take the easier missions, and they'd show up suddenly in the weirdest place, like, what's this guy coming out to this place for? You know, and the, the problem was that they got me several times. I mean, I blousing your fucking boots, right? And certainly the boots in the jungle get dirty, you know that. And you're right about, we were we would go out on from, let's say, seven days or two, about up to two weeks sometimes. And if you come, you know, you're, you're not in the frame of mind to uh, clean up the way they want you to clean up. I hated them so much. I, I hated MPs. And I happened to have been assigned after the second wound to be an auxiliary MP battalion. Now that's, in, I, I mentioned in the book, but I didn't tell you some of our duties. Among them, it's a hard duty to be a, a night, night, night sentry, whatever they call it, the guard, guard the billets, because it's fucking dangerous. You're sitting there all night, nothing happens. You're bored out of your mind. You don't talk to anybody. And it's pretty hard to stay awake uh, at three. It's a steady, whatever, night. So what happens? Sometimes something shit happens. It happens fast, right? And some guys, you know, before you know it. So you got to really be alert. And that's the hardest thing to stay is alert. And then sometimes I would go to the station. There was a station there where the MPs worked. And it was a police station. And they had all the pictures of all the deserters in the, in the station, right? And there were a ton of them in, Viet, in Saigon. They were hanging out in Saigon. They were, they, were, they were on the wall, you know? So they were doing black market activities, which was really interesting. It's a whole side of the war. There was a couple of well-known guys who, who made a fortune or were making a, rumored to be making a fortune. There was, had been, one black guy had been in the, in the city for two, three years, and they never found him. And this was only in 68, you know? So 
there must be some great stories about that war from those guys that were thinking about it, you know? The, uh, it's amazing. Money, 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 money. That was what the master sergeants were interested in. They could. They had some deals with the PX. You know, there was a big scandal in Vietnam. The head of the whole army, the masters. It's. A, it's. That's been documented. The, the master sergeant of the army, the the, the chief hot, hot dog, top dog, he was caught uh, with PX goods. It was. You, you can read about it. There was unbelievably corrupt unbelievably corrupt so everybody in the ramps all the ramps we call them ramps rear echelon motherfuckers uh they always had it had a deal there was always a deal going it was just like catch 22 from world war ii okay. i didn't want to, i didn't want to know about it but it was i guess have you heard that the the titles for ramps have changed today have you heard the new words there's there's two um the most common is fobit uh, which is somebody who stays on the Ford operating base. And then the other one, right, Henry, is Pogues, which is people yeah. other than Hans. Yep. I saw Hobbit. I saw uh, uh, Hobbit. I saw that in your book. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Those are the two most common. Same, but it's the same thing, the same sentiment. We hated them. We hated them. Uh, and some yeah. of them would, because they don't, some of them would really scream at you and bust your balls because that's what they like to do. Yeah. And uh, some of the characters and the guy that played the cowardly sergeant was well based on a guy who was famous for that. He was always a big shot back in the base, but hated to go to the field. <laughs> uh, O'Neill, Red? Yeah. Oh, right, right. He was yeah. based on the guy who was, who was actually called Red. Uh, that was one of the things that really interested me in, uh, you know, in Chasing the Light was... Uh, I mean, I had always known, I had known that you had served and I had known that you had volunteered. And so as I watched Platoon growing up, like that always struck me was so really none of the other directors that I could think of or screenwriters were, were veterans of this war. And yet they're making these patriotic yarns because, you know, the Rambos and the missing in actions of the world and all this. So I always knew there was some truth in the story, but reading about these characters and where they came from. Good. Like the two things that struck me were a how much of it is re really based on real folks, and then how much of it came from your parents and literature and Greek mythology. Yeah, well, because as you know, it's all strung out over. I was in four different units, so I mean, it's just kind of it, it's incident after incident. You know, you can't make a movie that way. You have to have a theme, and uh, I had to. As I, as I described it in the book, the way I came about the theme, which was to find out really what that war's meaning was. And I had to think it through for myself because it was certainly confusing at the time. And, and now we know more about it. We can say with somewhat with, with confidence, you know, what a waste of fucking national energy. But my God, if you were in the middle of it, there was a lot of... You couldn't say, we never talked politics. I never even heard a word of it. I never heard even protests. I mean, that wasn't even possible. You just kind of, you did your thing. It was like the black guys did their thing. They were just used to it. You know, it was just bullshit, man. They had no respect for the uh, war, but they, they served their time. And some were badasses too. My first, uh, my first uh, squad sergeant, you know, they, there were squad sergeants in some of those units. Those are those are the, the very small units, but mm -hmm. squad sergeants like five guys, I guess. Yeah, we still have them. Yep. And, uh, three stripers. Uh, they were they were some of them were 
mean motherfuckers. Uh, I don't know why, but there was one black, my first day on, like, they put me on point. Can you believe it? First day in the field. I mean, and I almost died of, of heat exhaustion in the jungle with cutting with a machete. My hands were started to, you know, what? he was just, he didn't like white men. I can tell you that. He just didn't like me. But there was all kinds of guys, you know. I think I was wounded badly. I think I could have been killed by this one. You, you'd love this story if you, it's uh, 30 years after the war, I go on a fucking show. Mike Medved was his name. He was a big critic back in the 90s. He was a real conservative guy in Seattle somewhere. He was a movie critic. And I did his show. Uh, and out of the blue, he brings on a guest. <laughs> Radio by voice only. It's my, that fucking sergeant, that scumbag, who almost killed me in the field. He threw the grenade. Right? He just threw a grenade, I, I believe. You know, I never proved it. And I, don't, I can't say for sure. But he was a cowardly motherfucker, fat guy too, and he threw the grenade and he and he got on the air and he was like tearing me down as being a bad soldier. Nice. It's very funny to have to face that thirty years after the war, right? And I bet you still felt, even as like a confident, successful guy, I'm sure you probably still reverted sort of to like feeling defensive about it. I imagine. Well, I've been through a lot of criticism at that point, actually. I didn't really know it was him until I thought about it after the show. And I said, oh my God, he was the guy. Right. It, it's interesting when a, when a veteran speaks out against the war, I've found, even still today, one of the first things that happens is um, like a character assassination that goes back to their record. That's, you know, and, and in other words, the idea being that if we can somehow, we're like, we're not going to engage with his rational arguments about this. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. So rather than engage with his like, you know, actual substantial critique of the war, what we'll do is we'll go back and we'll try to like find it. We'll, we'll try to scare up some soldiers that will say he wasn't any good or, or these little things. And it, it tends to be, you know, it's only happened to me a little. And, and luckily I've, I've always had more guys who I worked with or for me who have been positive, luckily, but that there is that attempt to, if we could destroy the level of soldier you were, then your arguments will fall apart. And of course, this is a t terrible, irrational fallacy, but. I was lucky too, in the sense that uh, I, because when I got the publicity, I brought a few of the guys from different units to New York and they filmed them. So there was, they, everyone knew who I was and they kind of had a different name back then. I was William, but it was a good reunion. So, and then, a lot of those guys popped up, so there must, I might have known about ten to twelve guys from the war, and one of, and there was a book written, and one of the guys really, I think, exaggerated my role in in saving his his ass during a firefight. Mm. Uh, did, I, did you when I did you get? I mean, I I don't know if, if the full people would realize that an all night battle, January one battle, that is weird, isn't it, to go through a firefight? Did you, did you understand the, the bizarreness of that, not to see anything? So I, I wrote like a whole bunch of notes as I was reading that because, and I think what I wrote, I could even find it. What I basically wrote was like, I know this is true because of how much the description of the confusion resonates. Um, one of the things that I've noticed and written a little bit about, and I, I in some ways I think I'm lifting it from Tim O'Brien's works, you know, the things they carried and all that. 
is uh, I find that whenever I get together with my old soldiers or lieutenants or whatever, and we tell the same stories to each other, it's like nobody's lying, but everybody saw like, even if we were right next to each other, a different angle or remembers it a different way. And then you start to wonder, uh, one of the things that struck me in your description was you almost start to wonder what really happened or did it really happen? And what of it did you dream up? And uh, that, that, that was always something I, I was surprised by repeatedly, even after I knew it was true, because like so many of the war movies uh, of really all the generations, they kind of take that part out and it's all very clear what happens and there's heroes and there's cowards and there's very little of that confusion. But of course, I thought Platoon, especially in the first half, is makes it very clear that it, it, they're, seeing the enemy is rare, casualties are often from booby traps, you don't necessarily know what the hell is going on and you can't see more than a foot in front of you. Yeah. That struck me immediately as, wow, this is authentic, like, and which I already knew. But Well, the final battle was not the battle I, I was in. That was more Hollywood. But I, you know, it was a low-budget film for, you know, and, a, and that's certainly trying to have a commercial hit. You understand that I uh, checked it up. But uh, that all movies do that to some degree. They have to because you can't see the fire. fire. You, you don't see it. You can't see the tracers the way they... They come out on a movie screen. Also, we use the light from tracers and and from the uh, flares and from the uh, gas bombs to to see to see better in the light in the dark. Can't see much in the jungle. Uh, but what's weird about the the night fight that that one was the biggest battle I was in was the bodies the next day. That was you see, the the positioning of the bodies, the way that they had been burned or, or however they were shocked into death so many bodies. I mean, we were literally 500 of them. And then our, our side, I never saw our dead, but I was told about 25. So it was a strange night. Uh, I did see the enemy on other, many other occasions, actually several other occasions, as well as I saw as many snakes too. Uh, but I think the closest I ever came, a strange, another strange story was, I didn't put this in the book, but I was on point again. But for some reason, they put me on point with a grenade launcher, which is kind of dumb. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, okay. And sure enough, right there, about five, ten feet away from me, across an anthill was this NBA guy. And I just was freaked out. I was behind something. Uh, he was behind an anthill. I was behind an anthill. I'm sorry. He was in a bunker. And... Uh, I was firing these grenades. <laughs> I was firing. I was a little bit freaked out. I was firing. And as you know, they were not exploding. Right, because they didn't revolve enough. Yeah. But anyway, we, he got away. And uh, I was going for my grenade at that point. But it was kind of nutty to see somebody like that. And then there was other times you saw them, as I described in the... <sighs> yeah. But mostly confusion. Mostly... Fuck ups. Fuck ups. I was interested in the, and I watched the documentary about it just recently that I hadn't seen the the train up that you guys did for the actors with Dale Die and you know, I, I maybe I was reading too much into it, but I was thinking about how like the generations had changed and you know you get rid of the draft and so my guess is and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong that nobody in that training none of the actors or none of the like the leading important actors had any military service or 
had even considered military service most likely. And yet I, you describe it as though it was like a very um, formative thing for them, like an important experience. Absolutely. They, uh, they had a recent reunion and, well, and I think most of them came to it and they, they talk about the experience with great fondness now. And uh, it, it's a, they did a little film about it. Uh, I don't think they've ever had, you're absolutely, I never, you know, they never had a military discipline, which was great. Die was good because he was a Marine type, uh, gung-ho, um, and he was tough, and, but in a, in a fatherly way. So he was a great trainer. My, 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 what I wanted from him was to control this unit, but also to really get them to this place where I, he knew the look I wanted, which was, you don't sleep in Vietnam. You really don't sleep. So you're always in a bad mood <laughs> and you're always fucking, you're generally irritated. You know, uh, it was a hard tour. So if you don't get enough sleep and you're all, you're always on the edge of your nerves kind of thing. And I got that look from them early on. I, I was very happy with that. And he maintained the discipline in that group because, you know, they're young kids and they tend to get a little bit, they, get, they, they tend to get a little nutty. So, girls in the Philippines, all this, you know. That's something, that, that's something that's definitely missing from the modern wars is we are not allowed and, you know, people break rules, but that's one, Henry, correct me if I'm wrong, that's one that almost never got broken in terms of we're not allowed or able to interact with the female locals. It's like unheard of, really. Crazy. Exceptions because there's this whole, like, Islamic wall that we've assumed between us and the civilians. So even in the more cosmopolitan Baghdad, you're not allowed to go near them. And then the other thing that's different, and this is interesting, I think, is um, the, the no drinking. So general order number one is no sex. You mentioned general order number one, I think, at some point in here. Uh, and uh, of course, general order number one is like so big and expansive. There's like 50 subcategories. But one of the main thing is no alcohol and no sex including no sex with fellow soldiers, which are the only females that you... Oh, that's right. Okay. Now, that happens. That happens, like, all the time. But you can get in trouble, and people do get Article 15s for that. Pretty serious. Um, so there's no alcohol because you're in an Islamic country, and there's, there's no sex. The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone whom you might think could be affected by it. A young person looking to join the military or possibly parents advocating for a kid joining the military, conscientious citizens who care about the violence, the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for my minorities and inflicts on those same minorities across the globe and anyone else you think might be affected by it. Please take a moment, share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer of the podcast, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. 
but you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Lawrence Taylor, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. And do understand that if you can't afford to contribute to us, that doesn't bother us at all. This is a hard time for everybody, and we just want to make sure that what we share gets to as many people as possible. And now, let's get back to the podcast. And it's some of it is based on that whole idea of how we're supposed to treat Islam as like a monolith, but also something that happened after Vietnam. And I imagine you may know something about this, but there's been some interesting scholarship on it. Um, the military was really taken, the volunteer military was taken over by evangelical Christians at the highest levels of command. And really? so, yes, and it's a real thing. And so those scandals you read about occasionally, like the Air Force Academy, that's just the surface. Deep down, this like cultural conservatism became common. So even before these wars, things like uh, drinking and sex had become like criminalized and put under the rug. They didn't go away because human beings are going to be human beings. And when soldiers are off in town, they do their thing. Just you're talking about the sixties. No, after. So really, it was in uh, you know it really kind of coincided with the Reagan Revolution and the in the eighties. You're talking about. Yeah, late 70s, early 80s. The oh, even after the draft had been... No, I, you're talking about the volunteer army. I, I misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so after Vietnam, you know, in the decades after Vietnam, this evangelical infusion came in, and it's very serious. I mean, some general officers have been mildly uh, rebuked because they never get in too much trouble for even doing videos for, like, evangelical political Christian groups while in uniform. Uh, when I taught at West Point, the superintendent, who had been the commander of the 25th, infantry division in Afghanistan was uh, he became the superintendent at West Point, which is a pretty big deal, three stars. But the, the word was he didn't get a fourth star and he didn't get another tactical command because he had done that. He had made this video when he was like a one star, you know, full uniform talking about the rapture for a Christian organization. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, uh, did you ever run across a character named Coster K O S T E R I do not. commandant of West Point in the seventies? I, you know, I didn't, but I know the name. In, in, no. I think he, was, yeah, he was the big dog there. He was the guy in the air. He was in charge of Milai. And uh, Ray Pierce, who I, I, was, I wrote a script about it. Well, I, I, I was going to direct a script about it. I didn't really write the script, but I knew a lot about research. Coster was a, a buddy of Ray Pierce. Ray Pierce, they did in World War II together peers in Burma and so forth. And they had a lot of, he respected Coster. Coster had been some big shot in the first infantry on the first wave, a D-Day or something. And 
as the investigators, Piers never believed the, the Milai story. He thought it was, you know, a lot of bullshit that they were whiners. And as the movie goes, uh, Piers gets more and more involved. And this is true. He was an honest man. He was a tough man, but he was honest. And he, he, he has his daughter, he's tearing him apart. He, he understands that something happened and he gradually uncovers this huge fucking mess. It was a, Milai was, they knew what was happening. The costume was happened to be even, even got in the air that day because they had hierarchy of helicopters in the sky and aircraft and, Coster was up there at the high at the highest uh, altitude, and he'd stopped by, and he knew what was going on down on the ground, and it was such a mess because, it, it, well, he like we get into that in the movie. The CIA actually determined that operation; they were telling the generals what the fuck to do. So, if you really search this story out to the top, and and Piers did, and it appears in the report, but it's been classified, and it's disappeared from history. But, the, and you know how it's, you know where they got their information? The CIA, the brilliant fucking CIA. This was in that province that was a real problem all the time. It was that second, uh, third corps. I forgot what they did. They got it from a, they tortured a VC. To, they tortured him badly. And he gave them this faulty information that on that certain day, they'd be, whatever there was that there'd be an nva unit in that village and so forth and so on never was not one bullet as i know was fired at them and they were just ready to kill and they were told to kill by medina so of course callie took the fall <laughs> callie was an asshole anyway but it's a horrible story yeah it is. I say that because west point costa was that yeah. so there's a great scene in the movie and peers at the end all these indictments were dropped except for one or two, three, and all of them. He had 25 indictments, battalion commander, uh, uh, so all the way up to the top, including division, the division commander of the uh, 197th or whatever it was. He goes up to West Point and he has a showdown with him and he tells him, you know, I know what happened. I'm, I'm really disappointed in you. And Costa really froze up and told him, you know, that you're never going to, make a case on this, never. And Westmoreland, who supported Piers at the beginning, backed away, and nothing was brought against Coster or anybody else at a high level. Striking that, even though Cali takes the fall, the fall is so small. Huh. It's disgusting. Know. It was like Trump pardoning that asshole. Yeah, Gallagher. Uh, I wrote about that. Um, I... I, I it's, it seems like history repeats with that because there's all this talk about how disciplined our soldiers are, especially in the all-volunteer force that we laud. But the reality is nobody of any rank ever faces accountability, nor have they ever. But, you know, and another thing that doesn't happen anymore is no one's held to account for tactical incompetence. <laughs> in World War II, Marshall was firing division commanders wholesale. Really? That's good. Uh, yeah. And uh, just because they weren't meeting. That, is, that, is that a fact? He was firing division? He was, yeah. I can't remember the number. I can do a quick Google, but it's, it's, a, it's like a, over a dozen division commanders are fired in combat for just tactical stuff. Now, the only way a general goes down, really, or a colonel, is a character flaw, which means embarrassing the military. So that means like sleeping with your soldiers or um, child porn, stuff like that that comes up. Like this really does happen. Uh, I had a, a one-star general, St. Clair, 
assistant division commander of the 82nd came to visit my outpost because for like a brief month, uh, I was like a celebrity in Southern Afghanistan because I had raised this local police unit, which was really a warlord militia. I had my reasons for agreeing to it. It doesn't matter. It's messy story. But so everyone wanted to come down and see this. And this was going to be the future of how we're going to win the counterinsurgency. And this one star came down. He was actually a really nice guy, charismatic, better than most of the generals. Came to find out that he was uh, sleeping like with a lieutenant on his staff and was found with like questionable pornography and stuff on his computer. So that will take somebody down. Wow, I can't believe this. This is disgusting. Yeah, this is the problem. And the whole accountability thing is down the tubes. I mean, there's none for the Iraq mess or the Afghanistan mess, or for that matter, Schwarzkopf with the the first Iran mess, Iraq mess. Uh, the uh, it's so it's such an ugly uh, situation. But this is true, I think, in government. Nobody f- took the fault for so those neoconservatives are still working and they're still influential and it's really sick because they got into the media it's a bug it's a virus that we can't get rid of you many of you guys have written about it how disgusting it is especially senior officers like you people who saw it with their own eyes they can't believe that these generals and uh, but i think it has to do with the modern era this is america now where we have so much corruption has risen to the top on every corporation, practically, that you're surrounded by protectors, insulation. You don't get upstairs unless you, you, get, you make a lot of networking, and then the networking protects you, I suppose, you know, when you get there. Oh, it's such a tough business. That's why, you, I mean, we're lone, we're lone wolves. We, we work alone. I mean, we don't have networking. We don't depend on... Uh, Thank God. I mean... Uh, I mean one of the things that was striking to me, so I was, I was, you know, criticizing, say, like Rachel Maddow for rehabilitating all these, you know, neocons who had committed war crimes in, in you know, Central America and then were involved in the Iraq war. And they all end up on her show and other polite liberals. But I was, I was telling a story. I said, well, that doesn't really surprise me, because like you said, in America today, the lack of accountability at the top is such that I had a two star division commander visit me in southern Afghanistan. And when I told him that one of my biggest problems was that our Afghan partnered army, supposedly the ones that are going to win this war, that they're the main thing. When I explained, well, they don't speak the same language and they're mostly Tajiks and Uzbeks from the north and they don't even understand Pashto down here. The general in charge of the entire regional command south, the Pashtun area, was surprised. He didn't know this. He said, wait, what'd you say? And I explained it again and he goes, and he, and he could tell he didn't know. And I thought to myself, ignorance and incompetence is not a limit. That's not what's going to get you fired. In fact, you know, because these guys are company men, you know what I mean? Like, that's what they are. They're bureaucrats and they're company men. So tactical incompetence and grit, that's not really valued anymore. She's back at it, Mano. I mean, she's hysterical about the Russian bounty system in Afghanistan that the Russians are giving money to the Afghanis to, to kill American troops. That is the biggest pile of bullshit, it sounds like to me. That's my column tomorrow. I'll, I'll shoot it to you. It's well, about yeah, well, you probably know more about it. But yeah. the fact is that the Taliban are beating us with that. They don't need no fucking Russians. Uh, but she's so nuts and she's hysterical. I, it's, it's depressing that she has any influence at all. You know, she should be thrown off the air. 
She's like a McCarthy figure. When did the liberals become these so-called McCarthy guys? I, I, yeah. Well, the reflexive anti-Trumpism seems to be such, and I hate Trump, but it's like the minute Trump got elected, just anecdotally, I always got a lot of hate mail, like pretty sometimes, and I'm sure you get more than me, but like sometimes up to and including death threats. And it was always from the right until Trump was elected, always from the right. It was always like the hyper patriotic conservatives. And then the minute Trump got elected, something changed. I questioned Russiagate. I questioned the reasoning for impeachment. And a couple of times I said, listen, if he said, if he did what he said, I would agree with him on a couple of things. And then suddenly overnight, all the hate mail was from the like mainstream left. And it was very, I don't know, I thought it was instructive, actually. Certainly is a shocking uh, change in our environment. There is no good guys. It's just, we got to make it on our own. We got to survive. There are people who are intelligent who think for themselves, but uh, it's a a strange time we're in. And we're all nervous. We're all walking on eggshells in the sense that you open your mouth, you say the wrong thing, and next thing you know, you're you're canceled. Right. So I wanted to ask you about that, if you don't mind. Um, Without, like, playing fanboy, one of the things that strikes me about your career in, especially in documentaries, right, is that particularly since Salvador, you, you've, you've met Castro, you've met Chavez going around Latin America, you've done the work on Ukraine and Putin. I've watched all of it long before I knew I was ever going to get to talk to you. And it, I always thought, well, in the end, maybe it takes a while, despite the critique that obviously gets sent your way. It seems that for the most part, you end up sort of vindicated factually, although that might not necessarily play out in the media and you, no one's going to apologize. But I mean, and yet you keep coming back to it and not really running from it. it was was Salvatore kind of, Salvador kind of a star point for you on that? Or was that in you beforehand, like that willingness to engage with? The- it's like I said in the book, it was a development process that occurred over that period of time. Certainly Jane Fonda was, uh, uh, for me, a courageous idol, a courageous heroic person. You know, the fact that she did that and uh, it, Hollywood tends to go in that direction. And I always, you know, I just grew. I mean, you had to see me back in the sixties to understand that I was pretty straight. Uh, and uh, I think by the, uh, by the time I went back to Central America with Boyle on that crazy trip I talk about, right. It was clear to me, especially in Honduras, I mean, Boyle knew a lot more and he was telling me stories about what they were doing in Costa Rica, what they were doing in Salvador, all the lying that was going on, the TDY shit, the, the, the military was pulling the wool over the eyes of the Congress people and sending extra troops down and all that stuff in Salvador. And the big, the big moment when Reagan helped uh, the, the Duarte government at the Battle of Santa Ana is a big moment, actually. Uh, a turning point and uh the rebels were really kicking ass and uh they gave the u.s gave a lot of equipment to uh, the salvadorans who misused it you know about the, the the killings and the massacres that were done with these death squads but the military death squads i'm talking about now like in colombia it's the same thing in colombia if you ever want to talk to anybody about that situation dan kovalik is a guy to talk to he's from pittsburgh and he's a good man uh and then when I went to Honduras, it was evident in the street. I mean, you felt it. I, I described these GIs walking around. 
you know, looking for, looking for, waiting to go. So I think some of them were National Guard at that point, but you could feel the creep. The creep was going to definitely go to Nicaragua was the next goal. There would have been a Vietnam. It would have been a Vietnam. And the only thing that prevented it was that fortuitously was that bust on Hassenfos. The, the, the flight that went down, because we broke every law on Nicaragua, mined the harbor, killed the Contras killed horribly. It was just tortured. They were the worst, and the worst, the worst. I mean, uh, so when that happened, the shift in the air, I just tried to mention it in the book, uh, it, it was so palpable that it happened in October, I believe. And then, so then we kind of found out, but we never really found out, Bob Perry went there, that Reagan was selling arms to uh, to Iran and uh, pocketing the money and sending it to the <laughs> sending it down to the Contras, man. Uh, president, I mean that's pretty big. I mean that's a gigantic amount of treason, actually. And they never they never gave uh, the Washington Post your our friend uh, Catherine Graham, who's supposed to be so heroic. That stupid fucking movie they made. Uh, I can't believe how ignorant how ignorant. Uh, as much as I admire Spielberg, how ignorant he was in that matter uh, to, to, to promote her as a hero when she killed the story. She said, we can't afford another Iran, another Watergate. We have to, we're not going to go after the story. And they didn't. But that is a dirty story. I mean, it goes all the way from Israel through Iran to, to South America, Central America. Oh, my God. And it's as blatant as you go. It's as blatant as Nixon. They, they're starting to now admit that Nixon tried to make a deal with the, the, the South Vietnamese to, not to negotiate on, on, with Lyndon Johnson. Uh, for the, and that, that holds water. I mean, it, and Bob was on to that, Bob Perry. So, but these two scandals are huge in American history. And then they make a big deal out of, you know, a fucking phone call to the Ukraine. <laughs> And that's a dirty story, by the way. Ukraine, I happen to know a little bit about because my producer brought me into that shit. Uh, that was, it's still a misunderstanding. And it's, it's never been corrected in this country. You always hear the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine now. You hear Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's really been a distortion all the way. And that's what's scary about this world that I came into. We always thought Orwell was going to be a book in a book, but we never thought it was happening in real life. It is. Right. Sometimes you feel on a bad day like Winston Smith. You just have limited, limited range. You have to be very careful, you know, if they'll get you. It's even me, you know, I mean, you'd think that, yeah, they're not going to go after me because it'd be, it'd be publicized. But no, I'm not so sure anymore. It does seem that as soon as you step outside the permissible boundaries, which keep narrowing, then you're, you're a target, whether it's for character assassination or actual, you know, criminal activity. It just, it does seem like what polite. More laws, more laws on everything. More laws on everything. Mm -hmm. Once they get the power, they get, then they, they keep making, they, they don't give it back. You know, when they when they took the um, the Patriot Act and they just misused the shit out of it and they they still are. And what's happened is that this covid stuff is, again, given them the realization that they can close down anything they want on the basis of an unseen virus. Right. 
and, and it's, it, it does seem, it also seems like Trump has also been like a COVID of his own for the media and the foreign policy elites. Like the existence of Trump, anything he's for, they're against, you know, anything he's against, they're for. And so the idea is he said, like, he's such a monster, which he is, but he's, you know, he's such a monster that therefore we have to suddenly adulate and canonize the CIA. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's so scary because this Russia story strikes me because you mentioned Iran-Contra. Okay, so blowjobs and calls to the Ukraine, totally impeachable. Iran-Contra, no big deal, forgotten mostly, except for a new podcast. And, uh, and I'm not minimizing those other things, but to me that seems like a bigger story. But uh, it just – why would we trust – unnamed intelligence sources from the United States and the West on Russian bounties after all the buzzwords that have told us, even just in the last 20 years, we should never trust the CIA again, whether it's Libya or torture or Abu Ghraib or WMD. I mean, these buzzwords alone seem enough to just sensible skepticism. And you can add Bolivia to that too. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like how the New York times, you know, put a correction on, on the Bolivia story, but like after it's over and it yeah. wasn't even a very good a correction. Yeah. I know. <laughs> you know, it's hard. If you try to get into that tit for tat with him, you, you get crazy. I mean, I, you got to keep, that's why I love Bob Perry because he did keep score. And I think that was important. And he was such a, he fought in, with integrity all the, from 1980s on, you know, he was, he was a good man. We need more people like him. Right. Uh, one of the they even intimidated they got they scared Cy Hirsch off it and that I mean Hirsch he could be tough and he wasn't very well but he had he had, he had a great he had that story I thought on uh, Pakistan and he just no one would buy it here they wouldn't even publish it. it had to get published in London that's pretty that's saying a lot when one of your top investigators is treated like we don't want to know about that. So you mentioned, um, you mentioned some of the films, like, so the way they take Catherine Graham and then create a reality, like a, a morality tale with her without much reference to the truth of the matter. And you one like of the Catherine, things- You're talking about who Catherine? Oh, the movie. Catherine, yeah. Yeah. The, the post or whatever that was. Yeah, that made me sick. And, and I, I imagine, and I'm interested in what you think about this and maybe you get this question a lot, but the Vietnam movies, previous to platoon and then even after platoon i mean the ones that seem to have sold the most or i mean platoon obviously was a mega hit but many of the ones that were commercially successful and popular and resonant were just such farces missing in action rambo first blood part two even like platoon leader or uncommon valor these were i mean i don't think that they really did a great they didn't they did a disservice to us and I guess what I'm wondering is to what, I mean, Platoon was your story and it was clearly your baby for a decade before it ever got made. And of course it went through the whole process of almost and then not being made, but was, was there, did you, I mean, did you have a bit of an ax to grind? That's the wrong term, but did, did you feel motivated to do something real to currently correct or change this record of what was being put out and what continued to be put out after Platoon? Uh, I was, if you followed the book, I was really grateful to make the movie. I was no position to grind any axe because frankly, 
I had no power. <laughs> I was an outsider, and it was a gift from John Daly, basically, that allowed me. On the most difficult circumstances that Salvador was made under, I was in no position. They were going to, they were not throwing roses at me. They were like, "What? This guy could be nuts," you know. He'd made a film that was out there, a lot of violence, and uh, and you know, what's he going to do in Platoon? So, you know, just the fact that I found a little bit of backing from Orion, a little bit, and a little bit from Daly. I was very lucky. You understand? It was a very lucky thing. It just broke through. I mean, frankly, I had a dream the other night, a nightmare. <laughs> it's very funny you mentioned that. I go into the Orion screening room in New York City that day in August of 1986, and I show the film, and I was literally in the back of the room again, and they were complaining... <laughs> about the film they started complaining about the film as it, it was I had like it, it never happened so I could see them starting to tear the film apart and that could have happened too in which case things would have been changed and so forth and so on you know it was it came out the way it was written and that's at least I could keep to that because I knew that was my story but if it had not been my story, it might have been a lot more difficult. I mean, then it made it a lot easier to make Born on the Fourth of July, which was also a problem, baby, because here you're dealing with Ron Kovic's anger. And there's a lot of it in that book and in the movie. And that made my way even easier to make, can you believe, Heaven and Earth mm -hmm. for more money because Born on the Fourth had been successful like that. So in other words, I'm very, very... It was a very special thing where you have a crack of light and you go through the. Now, Heaven and Earth uh, was a, a big investment for Warner Brothers, and I love the movie to this day because it's and it's also a true story about the Vietnamese side of the deal with Lily Hayslip, who was on both sides actually. She was, she marries an American and she goes through hell here, but she also goes through hell there, and she's a great hero to me, a heroine but that movie did not do any business and I killed off uh, from, from, you know, it killed off my magic, so to speak, but I was very happy to get away with three. I mean, even two, even one. Uh, so there was no access to grind. It was just, here's a chance now go because as I think you can see in the book, I didn't have power as a director, even on platoon, I was on a short leash with the finance company and all that, you know, I had people up my looking at everything I did, you know? So power comes to you after platoon. Yeah. That changes. Then I get more power, but even so they're always kind of like knocking you down too, trying to knock you down. It doesn't change, I guess. Um, so, you know what I'm trying to say about oh, that. I'm saying, yeah. I mean, axe the grind is sort of the wrong word. I, I think what, it was apparent in the book that you, like, you just had this opportunity and, and were almost feeling lucky to make the movie. Um, but also, I did say, I made another point, which I think people, I was so exhausted from the battles of Salvador that I kind of did a platoon by the numbers, like, okay. They're finally, okay, I don't believe this is really going to happen. It's never going to happen. Okay, I'll go over there to the Philippines. I know this is going to fall apart again. And, of course, we start to fall apart again with Marcos gets kicked out of the country. It's all going to shit again. And Salvador is not going to open. I'm going to be back in the fucking unemployment line, whatever. You know, it's over. But it's just gradually, gradually, bit by bit. No hopes. You know, picture's good. It's a good picture. It's a lo lower budget picture. You know, it could get dumped still. It may not come out. 
Ryan doesn't spend any money. I mean, how do I know any of these things? Only as the months go on and I'm getting closer to that December do I realize that it's got heat. Why? Not because of the stars, not because of critics, not because of promotion money. It had heat because an audience was there to see it. Thank God. Thank God they showed up that day. Right. They would have killed it if it hadn't done any business that weekend. It was over. So, you know, I was blessed. I was in the magic zone. Doesn't happen often in life. You know that. And what's, I mean, Platoon's interesting because I, until I read your book, I, I don't think I realized how small the budget was. Because, I, I mean, I don't think it, I didn't find that it watches that way. I mean, maybe to a trained eye like yours, you probably can tell that it's like a lower budget. But I thought, you know, it just, it always seemed like a, as, you know, as, Crisp is a big budget film. Yeah, great. Yeah, not because I think we did a good job, but it's certainly low rent, you know, in the sense of the, the way it was made with the lights, the timing. We, we had no time to make it. I mean, for example, with the Rambo Enterprise, by the time they get to Rambo 2, they're spending a fortune, you know, on all these special effects. They get the best of munitions, the best of everything, but they make it too big, you know, as a, I mean, as Apocalypse Now and Boys, uh, Straight metal, full metal jacket are the two good films about Vietnam. And Deer Hunter were three good films. They were good. They were good in a metaphoric way. Mm-hmm. I had no illusions that they were realistic. Nobody uh, would even be in the same unit like those, those kids in Deer Hunter. I mean, that was impossible. And plus, the Vietnamese are a little bit over the top and uh, a, little, a little bit, you know, the guttural. That was very much Chimino. And the, uh, but it's still a good movie. I mean, it's fun to watch. It's, it's an exciting movie. Apocalypse is a big, beautiful experiment in an American adventure abroad. You know, it's wonderfully, um, it's based on the John Mitchell to know that he didn't give a shit about the Vietnamese. He didn't get, you know, it wasn't about, it was the village. They're just villagers in the, running through the, bomb, the bombs here. And then, of course, you have uh, Full Metal Jacket was an interesting psychological movie. Even the Vietnam sequences, which were weird because it was shot in England, (laughs) but it was a strange power to that film. And it showed the mind of a Marine, the Marine mind, and how deluded we were when that female sniper shows up and she kills. I mean, she's responsible for all this. Kubrick got something there that was very intelligent. He, He understood that. There was a soul to the Vietnamese that resisted us and won and won. And he, he got the madness, of course, of the American military machine. We have come to fear and hate. And, and now we've come to hyper-adulate the, uncritically the military. Uh, well, you have. I have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no, yeah, no I, I haven't died. I mean, uh, I guess I mean the royal way. Uh, it, was that, it was in your book. You, you said, thank you for your service. You, you, you make a big deal about how sick you are of that terminology. Thank you for your service. Jesus Christ. There's something incredibly obscene to me about some of the trappings that come with, I mean, I understand that there was an overcorrection from the perceived, you know, spitting image of the Vietnam veteran. And I'm sure some of that was it wasn't really that true, as you pointed out, I think. Right. Yeah. And yet we took that mythology and then we said, well, now we have to like overcompensate. But 
in the process, we got uncritical about our military, uncritical about who serves and the wars we fight. Because I mean, no one until very recently, no, there's not a whole lot of critique systemically of. Listen, the guys that came home from World War II, they were ignored too. I mean, basically, they're taking jobs from the home front. When I got back, it wasn't like hatred; it was indifference. That's what shocked me. The, the, the people were running around trying to make a buck, as I was trying to say, constantly. And it was only about, you know, selfish money and material. And as a person from another world, it, was, it felt like I'm in the wrong world, you know. I think many veterans felt that they're out of touch, out of touch with education, out of touch with what, what, what am I going to do. And a lot of them had to go back to small towns where they didn't have any opportunities. I had a good friend. He was a black man. He went back to a small town in Mississippi. He had his teeth, you know, done done in all kinds of weird braces with all kinds of Vietnamese shit on him. I don't know what it was, but I knew he'd get, be in trouble. And sure enough, he was in jail pretty soon. And so was another friend in Oklahoma who was up for a major sentence. I went out to the parole board out there in McAllister, I guess it was, and I got him. I got him released. I mean, they, on my, a lot of my, I had a lot of sway at that point and the parole board said, okay, Mr. Stone, based on what you're, they let him out. And of course, six months later, he's back in, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a, you know, it's a tough, uh, it was a tough coming home for a lot of people. Uh, and you came home in, as individuals rather than units. Oh yeah. 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 Was, no, everybody came home as individuals. I mean, I don't remember what, we all had dates. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, you don't. That's right. You know, what, what, D-E-R-O-S? D-E-R-O-S? Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I know. I, I know uh, what it is. But yeah. But on the helmet, they would write October, November, December, whatever. Eight, 71 days, mm -hmm. 53 days. I was in the field for up to about 11 days or something. I was out in that fucking mission in the Ashdown Valley. We got rained in. Pure rain. That cover shot on the book comes from that last mission. <laughs> in other words, we couldn't get out of there. We had no cover either, no helicopter cover, nothing. It was a freaky two weeks. Right. I remember, uh, you know, 332 in terms of the countdown when Charlie Sheen comes back from when you come back from being wounded. He says, how many days do you have? Uh, 332. And he said, I, I can't even remember when I was 332, you know. <laughs> uh, we count down now, but we count down as a unit. And everyone comes back together and everything's seen, well, except for the guys who die or get wounded and sent home, but everything seems better, right? And it is in some ways. There's a big ceremony. Your family's there in the gym, on the base. This is the all-volunteer force. But in the end, a lot of the same alienation is there because they say, okay, you have a 72, you know, all that same alienation of I'm home, I don't fit in society. We've turned so many of our soldiers into this like warrior class. Uh, Praetorian Guard. We even call ourselves warriors now, uh, which is a ludicrous term. You know, the citizen soldier is dead. The concept is gone. Uh, and they even changed the name of the uh, school for sergeants, like the silly little school that, you know, three stripers have to go to. That It used to be called the PLDC, Primary Leader Development Course. Well, about five or six years ago, they changed it to the Warrior Leader Development Course, right? So we're all warriors now. We're all machismo the Russian, sol Russian soldiers are a lot better, a lot better. They're tough, tough. 
if we go to war with them, we're going to fucking, you'll see, it's not going to be that simple. And it, I don't think the Venezuelans are, are in lockovers like we, like we think we are. They, you know, I think we always overestimate, we underestimate our opponents, always. And the Chinese, I don't know, but I imagine they're pretty tough too. I don't think we're, I think we're crazy. <laughs> I think we're nuts and we're going, you know, we should, we're like bullies. You know, we don't know, how, we don't know what the undersized opponent can do. Uh, they're, you know. they're all investing in this, um, I mean, you may have heard the term A2AD equipment. Uh, it's, uh, it stands for Aerial Denial Anti-Access. And all it means, it's just military terminology, all it means is that they are putting their money, you know, we spend way more, but they spend smartly into these systems, mostly missiles, cruise missiles that can stop us from getting into the theater because we have to come from 10,000 miles away to fight in Latvia or the South China Sea. And uh, serious Navy guys understand that we're going to lose or get bloodied really bad in those theaters if we fight. And I think you're correct about that. It's, uh, and yet we don't really think a whole lot about it, do we? Because I used to ask my students, my freshman cadets that I used to teach, I used to say, how many of you know that your country is uh, basically by treaty contractually obligated to go to a full-throated war up to and including nuclear war for the Baltic, you know, for Lithuania? So raise your hand if you knew that. And then I would say two more questions. Would we do it? And should we do it? And I'm not sure of the answer to either of those. Danny, I have to go. It's almost five o'clock. Yes, it's been a long time. But you guys also had, don't, they changed the army now. They have, I mean, we had to, we had our own, we had to KP ourselves. I guess you don't have KP anymore. They've contracted most of that out. Yeah. Um, my, first, my first night in the, uh, our second night in uh, South Carolina, uh, you know, one of those experiences, they put me on KP duty. Uh, I said, okay, Stone, report it, whatever, 2 a.m. I walked for breakfast at 5.36. I have to report at 2 a.m. It was the hardest three hours I ever, it was my introduction to the Army. You know, I had to do, I had to, among other things, I had to break about 2,000 eggs or 3,000 eggs in, in for the, battalion that was coming through all of them short-haired like that mm. oh, you know it's not that easy to break three thousand eggs you'll see what happens to your fingers right. when you do it i just never forget that and then the, the meanness of the cooks the army cooks they're 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 legend i guess you have to understand how nasty they can get <laughs> especially when they got new guys running around anyway there was a lot of shit details that, that were that you had to do that back yeah. in the they you know, have Vietnamese or Iraqis doing it. I can't believe they even, they come out on the base. They know all you, they know exactly what you're doing. Well, the Vietnamese did anyway. So yeah, and, well, same. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll let you go, but uh, just the final funny. Remember, at the 25th infantry at Kuchi, the, the big base camp, they had tunnels right underneath us. You know, I mean, we know that, but that's amazing. Wow. <laughs> all this time. <laughs> It, it really, it's, it's completely wild when you think about the local help and intelligence. Uh, we've mostly, I'll leave you with this. It's just because it's clever or funny. Uh, we got, you know, we don't use the Iraqis in Iraq. We don't really use, except for interpreters. We bring in Pakistanis and Bengalis, the, the, the same folks who go work in the Saudi oil industry. They come work as cooks on our bases. And so I actually learned about cricket from staying in the chow hall after hours with the Pakistani uh, Immigrants. That's how I learned to watch cricket and learn the game. Although I still don't totally understand. That's interesting. So they didn't want you to mix with the Iraqis too much. Almost none. I see. Almost none. Yeah, very, very interesting. 
We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not 